If you uh, haven't already gone, at this time we'll dismiss our children three to six. Today we're going to continue on in uh, learning about Stephen and his story in the book of Acts. Uh, If you're going to follow along this morning, we're actually going to look at a big chunk, so we're not going to have the words posted on the overhead. Uh, So I encourage you to do this every week, but especially this week, you'll want to get out uh, your Bible or one of the Bibles in front of you. And we're going to be on page 914 in Acts chapter 7. We're going to spend two weeks looking at Stephen's sermon. And it is a little weird because we're not going to finish the sermon, and you sort of, to understand the sermon, need to hear the whole thing, which, that's a life lesson. You're welcome. Um, But it's really long. And so it's actually 53 verses, and it's actually the longest speech in the entire book of Acts. And so we're going to break it up into two parts. And so if we get to the end and you're like, but, but the next part, I'm like, I know, I know. We'll get there. It's cool. So you have to come two weeks in a row. So again, you're welcome. Um, but it's, I think it's interesting to see that in a book filled with guys like Peter and Paul, that Stephen is the one who gets to talk the most. And again, remember when we first met Stephen. Stephen was one of the first, what we might call, seven deacons that we saw at the beginning of this chapter. This guy who was recruited along with six other men to be in charge of the daily distribution for the widows. This guy was a helper, a servant making sure people had food and clothing and perhaps money in this daily distribution, a behind-the-scenes, detail-take-care-of guy. And God chooses him to have the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts. And again, it's a reminder that all of us will be used by God to spread the gospel. That God uses all of his people to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who don't believe. And because this sermon is not just given to anyone. This sermon is given to the Sanhedrin, a gathering of the most powerful people in his country. And because Stephen relies on the word of God, he is going to speak to that power authoritatively. And next week we're going to see that he tells them they're wrong, which everybody loves, especially those in power. And so we see in Stephen a model of boldly preaching the word of God and boldly taking advantage of opportunities. Because what Stephen's going to do is he's going to take the religious leaders of his country 
through a history of their own Bible. And he's going to show them that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Savior they say they've been waiting for. Now, next week, he's going to warn them to not reject Jesus and what that means, but we'll get there. But today, as we look at this first part, it's a simple idea, but it is such a central idea to everything we are as believers. So again, if you're following along, your big idea there is Jesus is the Savior God promised to send to redeem his people. That's the whole, all 34 verses I'm going to cover this morning can be summarized in that one sentence there. That Jesus is the Savior God promised to send to redeem his people. And we're going to see God is a God who keeps his promises. And when you really believe that, it will change, one, how you understand your own salvation, and two, how you live that out in the community. So let's first look, as we dive into Stephen's sermon here, of, of number one in your outline there, if you're following along, that God makes promises. Let's look at verses one to eight. Follow along as I read. And the high priest said, Are these things so? This chapter is, is ending that Stephen is being interrogated and false witnesses have been brought up. So now it's Stephen's turn to defend himself. Verse 2, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So again, most of this sermon that Stephen gives is a history lesson. He's telling them their own history. And he begins by talking about the promise God made to Abraham. And we go back in your Bible, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is just a great place to have memorized uh, that this is where it's at. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And we look at the promise God gave to Abraham. Let me read. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So sometimes we call that the Abrahamic covenant. Sorry, you can't use Abrahamic and Scrabble. It's a proper noun. But if you could, it'd be a great Scrabble word. But we see this as this promise that God made with Abraham to be a great nation, to have land where his descendants could live, and that through him, all peoples on earth would be blessed. And so Stephen, in verses 2 to 5, picks up on God's promise of land. So look at verse 3 there especially. So God said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So he picks on this specific part of the promise. That God said, I'm going to give you the promised land. That's why we call it the promised land. Okay, not because it just sounds nice, but because it's been promised to Israel, to Abraham's descendants. And we see, right in verse 4 there, that we know God has kept that promise. Look at verse 4. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him there into this land in which you are now living. So he's talking to the descendants of Abraham, and he brings up this promise of the land. He says, oh, by the way, guess what? You're living in the land. Promise kept. He's setting up a pattern here that God makes promises and that God keeps those promises. So God promised Abraham, I will give your descendants land, and now they're living in it. Good job, God, keeping your promises. There's a pattern. God speaks, and it happens. But they have to wait for the promise. The promise doesn't always happen right away. Look at verses 5 to 6. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So the idea there is God made this promise, but Abraham never actually got to see the promise fulfilled. He had to believe that God was going to do it, but he never actually got it. Again, look at verse 5. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. The sense of waiting. But not only that, when you get to verse 6, he says, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. And so he says, not only did Abraham not get it, but there were 400 years, approximately, where Abraham's descendants would be enslaved and not get the promise. You know, it puts our waiting sometimes in perspective. <laughs> I don't know the last time you waited 400 years for something. I'm just saying. But, but, but just as a little side note here, that, that sometimes the promises God makes don't immediately happen. 
And there is an element of waiting. I think one of the things that we've been tricked into believing is that we can have instant gratification with all of the promises of God. There is no instant gratification in the Christian life. There is a lot of delayed gratification. And the problem is, is if we don't get what we want, we get a little crabby. Again, there's a million child metaphors right in there. <laughs> Everyone make your own and we'll move on. But, <laughs> but how driven are we by instant gratification, especially in a culture where if the website takes more than five seconds to load, <laughs> we shut down the whole thing and start the computer again and complain about how we need a new computer. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> But, but has that come into our Christian life? Has that oozed in that we want it and we want it now? And maybe is sometimes God saying, you're going to have to wait. And waiting isn't always pleasant. I mean, just think about that. God is saying to Abraham, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. That, that's, that's like the definition of unpleasant. Right? We think that, again, it's this, it's this lie that, that if I am faithful to Jesus, no problems, ever. It's not even a good lie because you can't even manipulate this to say that. That sometimes the wait is hard. And we shouldn't miss the fact that sometimes waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled is compared with the Egyptian slavery. I mean, it's, it's so easy to gloss over that because we, like, we know, yeah, Charlton Heston eventually gets him out of Egypt. But we forget that they were there hundreds of years. We think we have to wait a long time, but imagine being there and, and over 400 years, that's multiple generations of people. If, if you're saying the same prayer as your grandparents of, Lord, when will deliverance happen? I mean, that's, that's really trusting the promises of God because you don't see, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel always. But again, part of what we're going to see here this morning is that God always does, always will fulfill his promises. No matter how long and no matter how hard the wait can be, we know that God will keep his promises. And so it can sustain us through the hard times when we cling to the rock that is God's word and his promises. But along the way, but along the way, God will give us, by his grace, evidence that he, he knows his promise. So for example, 
going back to what we said before, the, that they know God's promise about the land was true because they were living in it. Or when we talk about the promise of, of many nations, that Abraham did become the father of Isaac. And that Isaac did become the father of Jacob. And that Jacob did have his 12 sons. That those births, those children, were signs that God was still at work. That God did not let the line of Abraham die out. It wasn't because of military might that Abraham's line survived. It was God giving life and protecting their lives. And so we see in verse 7 and 8 that God gave them the covenant of circumcision, this sign on their bodies that they were God's people and God was going to keep his promise. In some ways, it was a physical sign of God saying, I will do what I said I'm going to do. And then again, at the end of verse 8, we see the list of children born, the continuing of the line. And so Abraham could look at Isaac and said, God is still going to keep his promise. Isaac could look at Jacob and say, God is still keeping his promises. Jacob could look at all 12 of his kids and the mess that that household was and say, God, even... (laughs) You go back and you read that story with fresh eyes of saying, this is dysfunctional, and yet God still loves sinners. Okay, let's, let's just be honest about that story. That's not the way a family is supposed to live. But in the midst of all of that, God continues his promises to Abraham. And we can do that in our lives. And a lot of times when we look back at an event, we see God's faithfulness. We see it in each other's lives, that when we look at at something that happens to someone else, we see that God is still working and loving his people. And we need to take time to, to understand what God is doing, that he is encouraging us through our history and through the history of others that God is still in the business of saving sinners and rescuing his people. And sometimes we need to stop and really think about it and look at our past through the eyes of God and see his sovereign hand directing all things. Not only do we see God promising, just making promises to Abraham, but we also see that God provides a promised redeemer. And we're going to see this in the person of Moses. So again, we've we've come so far of God saying to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to use you to bless the entire world, but... Your, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. And so now we're going to see that God is faithful in, in delivering 
his people. So we're going to jump to Moses. So this, this is a bigger chunk here. We're going to go uh, start with verses 9 to 16. Follow along as I read. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So the first thing we want to see is that God is always with his people. Look at verse 9 there. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. That when, when we experience hardship like Joseph did, again, he was sold into slavery. Again, don't... Don't just read over that and, and make it sound not as bad. <laughs> he, he was a slave. But the difference was God was with him. And God was never going to leave him. And so, God uses the jealousy of his brothers for Joseph to save his whole family. Because what we see in the story of Joseph is that God's people are in danger of dying out. And God has to protect his promise. Because there was a famine. We see that in verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Again, this is not the world of supermarkets. They couldn't just ship in food from China or something. They were going to die without food. And so God used the sin of his brothers in selling him to Egypt so that he could bring Joseph into being a, an official of Pharaoh's court so that he could then save and provide food for his family. Again, we see God being faithful to his promise that God will not be stopped even by a famine throughout a whole land. And God works even in spite of the sin of others. That he cannot break his promise and he can do anything to keep his promise. And so he uses Joseph to save Abraham's descendants. And again, we're given another glimpse that the promises are still there. Look at verses 
17 to 19. Sorry, uh, verse, verse 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. God continues to grow this family into a nation. And then in verse 17 to 19 we read, But at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, again reminding us of the whole point, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Even in slavery, God kept his promises to Abraham and multiplied his people. So that they are growing from Isaac, the only child, to Jacob's 12 children, 12 sons, to now 75, and even in the harshest of places of slavery in Egypt, God is continuing to multiply the people into a great nation and keeping his promise. In fact, Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 says this, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Even in the harshest place, God multiplies his people and no power on earth can stop God increasing his people. And again, according to the promise which God had granted to Abraham. But now, they need rescue. God used even slavery to save his people, but now, the people need to be delivered from slavery. Again, go back to verse 7 of chapter 7. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after all that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. He promised that slavery would happen, but he also promised redemption from slavery, deliverance from slavery. So what is he going to do? Look at verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. At the time of fulfilling the promise he had made, he provided a baby. A baby who would grow up and deliver his people from slavery. Let's read verses 20 to 22. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up, up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Right when the people needed a redeemer, God provided Moses. And we see his provision further in verse 22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. That even the whole putting Moses in a basket and having the, the Pharaoh's daughter discover him was so that he could be trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians because God was preparing him to lead a nation. 
Again, if you cannot see the sovereign hand of God in Moses' life, you're not reading close enough. Not only kept him from dying, okay, again, just, again, think about this, a basket in the Nile River. This is not a safe place for children. I'm not going to demonstrate. I'm just going to say, don't put babies in rivers and baskets. So not only does he save him from death, but he gives him the best education in the world for leading a nation. God will use the wicked people of Egypt to train the leader of his people. Because at this time, Egypt was the world superpower. If you wanted to get educated, go to Egypt. And here God is using the Egyptians' training against them. Because there is no power greater than our God. And so he will use the Egyptians any way he wants to use them. Because he has promised to deliver his people from slavery. And when God keeps a promise, when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. But now we've got a Redeemer. Well, now we've got to send him. So again, we need to see the provision that God providing Moses to redeem his people. But now, in verses 20 to 53, <clears throat> we're going to see that God sends the Redeemer to his people. Let's start in verse 23 there. When he, that's Moses, was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you, want me to, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So first, and this is recorded in Exodus chapter 2, Moses runs away. He, he tries to defend one of the Israelites. And the guy says, what, are you going to kill me too like you killed the Egyptian? And you sort of see this threat of, hey, I know you killed the Egyptian. It's really easy for me to go tell my Egyptian buddies, you know, the people that I work for, and get you into big trouble. Again, who says there, um, <clears throat> who made you ruler and judge over us? By the way, the answer to that is God. Um, but we'll, we'll get there especially next week. Um, because they ultimately do reject 
the Redeemer, Moses. Just like they're rejecting the Redeemer, Jesus. But again, that's, that's next week's sermon, so come back. Um, so Moses runs away. He runs away because he doesn't know what to do. But God is going to use him running away to prepare him even more for what he's about to do. Look at verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. Now the first thing we know from Exodus is, is what Moses did while in the wilderness during these 40 years. He was a shepherd. He was learning how to shepherd sheep as God was preparing him to shepherd people. It's not a coincidence that Moses and David were shepherds before they were the leaders of God's people. It's not a coincidence that then the Lord himself says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's not a coincidence that Peter says to the elders, you are the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who himself said, I am the good shepherd. God continued to prepare him with the glorious work of shepherding. Through the not glorious, but dirty, hard work of shepherding. And again, looking back, I'm sure Moses said, that was preparing me to lead God's people. God provided every experience Moses needed to shepherd his people. God provides in your history everything you need to minister to God's people, to serve one another in the church. But we also see here, in addition to that, of God sending. But look how God describes himself in verse 32. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So everything else that God says here is based on his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is saying, I am still keeping my promise that I made all the way back to Abraham. But why? Well, one, we see his great love for his people. Look at verse 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. 
God sees us in our affliction and acts on our behalf. God saw his people in slavery and was sending Moses to deliver them. God sees you in your sin and being separated from him and sent Jesus to deliver you. And for those of you who have have already believed in Jesus, God sees every affliction that you are in and is working things out for your good. Again, the pattern of God keeping his promises. If he kept it with Moses and the Israelites, he will keep it to you today. We close here with two two major points of application. One I've said a couple times already, that God keeps his promises. That every promise you see in Scripture, God will keep. One's like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. where he says no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. Where he says, and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Every promise is sure. Every promise will be kept. When everything else around you is chaotic, and goes, goes to garbage, God's promises stand. That is a certainty that you can stand on when your life is completely uncertain. Secondly, and again, most importantly, that Jesus is the ultimate promised redeemer. And again, Stephen, in, in the next week, as we get to the end of the sermon, is going to tie up some loose ends and connect it to Jesus right before they throw rocks at him, which, let's just think about that one. We'll do that one later. But, but God sent Jesus in the same way he sent Moses to redeem us. First we saw that he sent Moses at the right time and according to his promise. Galatians 4, 4 4-5 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The promise took a while. And God's people had to wait for thousands of years. But God kept his promise in sending his son to die to pay the penalty for our sins. 
And just like God sent Moses to save God's people out of slavery in Egypt, God sent his son to save us from the slavery of sin, which leads to death. Romans 6, to 23 says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That in the same way that the Israelites were saved out of slavery, out of that terrible life that leads to death, so Jesus saves us out of a slavery to sin which leads to eternal death in hell. That God did not leave us in our sin just as he did not leave the Israelites in slavery, but gave them life and gives us the hope of eternal life. And this This promise is received in the same way it's always been received. Abraham believed in the promise of the land, and so he went. We believe and find redemption in Jesus. It has always been and it always will be that we are redeemed by grace through faith. Romans 3, 23 to 25 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's that, that slavery that we're in and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that this redeeming, that being saved and delivered out of slavery is through Christ, whom God put forward. That this was God sending his son again, God keeping his promise by his blood, to be received by faith. The promise of Jesus is accepted by placing our trust in him and what he did on the cross, and so that anyone who believes can be delivered from that slavery to sin that leads to death and find eternal life forever. Jesus is the redeemer you need. He is the promised redeemer sent by God. And redemption, that deliverance is available to all by faith. And so for some of you, that means that that first act of faith, of, of repenting of sin, and placing your trust in the Redeemer that God sent to save you. To find deliverance from sin and to find life and life eternal. So again, as we think through what Stephen is saying, that God is faithful in all his promises and ultimately he is faithful in sending his Son to redeem us and save us from sin. And if you look at any promise 
that God has made, you can look at the cross and see that God always keeps his promises for our good, for the good of his people. And this is the promise we celebrate in communion. That God did send his son. That that when you're holding the cracker and the juice, that you're remembering God kept his promise to save us from our sins because without him we would be dead in our sins. That it... Jesus just doesn't make us a better person, but he saves us from death and offers us the hope of eternal life. And again, it's not just a ritual that we do every month. And it's not just the, the post-sermon snack every, every month. But it's holding visible evidence that we can look at, smell, see, and taste and say, God sent his son to die for me. So at this time, I'll, I'll invite those who are going to help serve communion to come up at this time.